Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. And so let's start off, if we could, by reading the scripture. Would you stand with me, please? This is a reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Father, we pray that as we read your word about the gospel, that you would speak something new and fresh to our hearts. And for those, God, whose hearts might be considering you, that something would open in terms of who you are. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This is the gospel. That's what the writer, the Apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus, said in that scripture. That's how he ended it. And that's what I want to talk about in the next few weeks of time that we're going to spend together. Because we hear that term, gospel. And frankly, in today's world, you can't make assumptions of anything anymore. And so I realize that for some people who have walked the path of following Jesus for some time and partnering with him, they understand a little bit more of what that means. We, we at least think we get that. Although sometimes I think we can have a narrower view of that than is actually meant, as we see here. For some of us, we've heard that term. We've heard Christians use that term. We, we hear them talk about the gospel, and they usually say that with a smiling face or something, but we have no idea exactly what that means and how that might be relevant to our lives. So let me start by saying the gospel simply means it is the good news. God has good news for the world. He has good news for you. He has good news for me. And the gospel at its heart, the reason it's good news is because it's God's a way of answering the deepest questions of life. We all, no matter what our walk is, we ask the same questions. How did I get here? What am I doing here? Um, How how should I live? What's my purpose in in life? What, What ways should I live? What is right and wrong? Where am I going? What's my, my future, my destiny? How did I get here? What's my purpose? How should I live? Where am I going? 
These are fundamental questions of existence, things that we're all trying to process out. And God has an answer for these things, and he calls it the good news. It's news that's important for us to understand. Now, when we hear that term, sometimes even those who follow Jesus, we hear the term the gospel, and I think sometimes we have a certain verse that comes to mind. It wasn't the one we just read. It's a verse called John 3.16. Every football game knows this verse, right? We hold it up on a sign, and we consider it core to the message of, of God. And it says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. That's absolutely core. That is the gospel, part of the gospel. But the gospel doesn't actually begin there because the problem sometimes when we hear that is it still sounds a little bit like it's focused on us, that it's about us in the end. And while we're certainly involved in it, really the gospel message is not chiefly about us. This series that I'm going to spend the uh, next few weeks with you on is going to be kind of an exploratory series. We're going to explore the scripture together, answer some of these questions, some of these words, and also look at some elements of what the gospel is. And we're going to start up front because really the gospel, as we just saw in that verse that told us this is the gospel, is really th- at least three parts God and one part us. And we got to get that straight in this world. It's a, at least three parts God, maybe I'd argue four. But one of those parts involves us as well. We have to flip the narrative in our minds. Yes, the world, if you hear where I'm going with this, I'll just let the cat out of the bag now. It's not about us. Life is not ultimately about us. And if we don't get that right, we're going to be backwards. Now, the writer wrote this to a church in a city called Colossae at the time. It would be modern-day Turkey nowadays, okay? It's a letter to the Colossians, okay? And when he wrote this letter... He was writing to a group of people that kind of had an understanding, or they thought they had an understanding of the deeper mysteries of life. And so they, they didn't really need to see it. They had their own view of God and their own view of spirituality and their own view uh, of how to get to those things. And they really didn't need to hear God's gospel on the matter. They, they had a different way of looking at it. And he wrote this to correct that. And he said, no, you need to hear the narrative. You need to hear the message the way it is. This is the gospel. And if you notice, he begins by telling him, you need to understand who God is. That's where it starts. You want to understand the deep questions in life? You begin to understand, not you, but you understand who God is. That's where it starts. And so he says that right at the beginning, and we'll read it again. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. We're going to unpack this. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's the owner of it all. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, we're going to get to this person called the Son in a moment, but notice he's talking about God. When we hear that word God, I think there are as many different understandings of that today as there are people, because we're all pouring our own meanings into it. And so I don't know exactly what comes to your mind when you hear the term God or when you hear terms like Lord or King or terms that tend to be ascribed to God, ruler. I mean, sometimes we're just distant from those things, especially in in our Western country. We don't understand a king anymore, so it's hard to really grapple. What does that mean to me? How is that relevant to me? But when we hear all those terms, I'm going to give you one to, to really let it stick in your head, hopefully. God, Lord, King, ruler, even authority, It's hard for us to understand authority. We want to be our own authority, okay? All of those words are subsumed by one word, creator. 
God is the creator. What does that mean? God is the only one who is dependent on nothing. He doesn't need anything to sustain him. He doesn't need anything to add to him. He's not increased in any way by anything. He is who he is. Everything else, though, depends on him. Creation. So God is creator. He depends on nothing. Everything else in creation, and by the way, a little hint, that includes you and I, depends on him. And so life really is a lot about recognizing our source. What is the source in order for life to make sense? So you think about all the studies we have of this world, right? We study cosmology, the study of the stars, and geology, the study of the earth, biology, the study of life, archaeology, the study of the past, anthropology, the study of humankind, embryology, the study of humankind and life in the womb, epistemology, the study of knowledge, psychology, the study of our mental states and awareness, all of those things, cosmology, geology, biology, all the way through psychology, all of those ologies actually are rooted in theology, a study of God. If you don't understand the source of it all, then all of it doesn't really connect and make sense. You can't make sense of the world if you don't make sense of its source. That's why theology or the understanding of God is so critical to who we are as people, all of us. In other words, the more we understand who God is, the more we understand who we are. The more we understand who God is, the more we understand who we are. And that's why the gospel starts there. The first thing we're told is that Jesus is God. He's Lord in that sense. It says the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, when you hear that title, the Son, you need to understand that there are many titles in, in, in terms that are given to who Jesus is. The Son or the Son of God is a term that's often that applies to him. Or Messiah or Christ, two terms that basically mean the same thing, and they mean that he's a special one that God sent to accomplish and achieve a very specific, very important purpose. He, God knew there was a problem in the world, and he sent him as the solution to the problem. So all of these kind of terms apply to Jesus. We'll see another one in a little bit. But we're told that the Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's where it starts. The gospel starts with understanding that. Now, when we hear that term, sometimes we think of, at least if we've walked this path a little bit and we've learned a little, we've talked about it here in the church, we've talked a lot about how people, human beings, are made in the image of God, right? We've talked about that. And we need to understand what that means and what that doesn't mean. To be made in the image of God does not mean that we are like God and we can speak and universes can leap into existence. Some of us think it works that way. We certainly act that way, but that's not what it means. What it means is that we have imprinted on us from our creator, we uniquely as human beings, have imprinted on us a moral understanding, the understanding of of his moral character, what's good and bad, as well as the ability to spiritually have a relationship with him. We're the only ones that can do that. And that's why we have the image of God imprinted on us in that sense. But this statement here is going way beyond that. Though it might be the same word there, what the writer is actually telling us, what Paul is telling us, is that he is the spitting image of the Father, God the Father. The spitting image. And if you don't believe me, just read on. For in him all things were created. All things in heaven, on earth. Every created thing was made by him, the Son, Jesus. Jesus. 
Everything visible, invisible. From galaxies you see to the beams of light that you can't see. You only can see because they're there, but you can't see them themselves with your eyes. From, from the dust particles on the ground to, to your mind and consciousness, all of that God has created and put in place. He put it in place. It had been created through him and for him. He's the owner of it all. He's before all those things. He holds it all together. Without him, it would fall apart. Like as many, if you dump marbles on the ground, just scatter all over the place. He holds it all together in its form. That's who he is. And there is nothing in terms of spiritual ideas or ideas about who God is. I don't think there is any idea more challenged than the idea that Jesus is God. You can talk to people about things that I don't think are very tenable, like reincarnation, and most people will be kind of cool with it. Hey, whatever, man, live and live. This sounds cool. You can even talk to people in a general sense about God and, and faith and religion and practices and things like that, and nobody really, you know, okay, live and let live. The moment you say that Jesus is God and that he is Lord of all, boom, you better be ready, there's, there's a fight. I know this myself because I walk the same journey, and for, for me, the hardest thing I could come to, to, gr- to grips with is the idea that this, this person who stood here and walked shores like I do revealed God himself in a way that was relevant and personal to me. That's a difficult thing to, to grasp. And so we hear a lot of objections on that, and I wanted to take just a few minutes here and answer a few of those because we'll hear some people say, for example, some, some clever people, We'll look at it and go, wait a minute. I thought you can't see God. God's invisible. God's spirit. God's somewhere else. So I thought you can't see God, and yet people could see Jesus. How does that make sense? In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, we're told this, right? We're said, God said, you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. So what do we do with this? Well, Jesus kind of dealt with it, and the scripture kind of dealt with this. Because what's interesting about this statement and what we're about to see is it actually challenges a bad belief about God. There's an idea about God that God the Father and Jesus, who we're told is the Son of God, and if we had time, we'd go into the Holy Spirit, it was another element, that we're told that these are all kind of the same person, that God just put on different outfits and played different roles at different times. That actually diminishes God in a way the Scripture tells us is wrong. It's, it's not a proper view of him. And so when we see this, and then we see Jesus say this next thing, he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? He said that to one of his followers there who didn't quite get who he was. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is acknowledging that he's not the Father, he's separate from him, but he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen everything you need to know about God the Father. And so he's challenging this idea, what some people have called modalism or Sabellianism, fancy word simply to mean that God is not playing different roles as Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're in an intimate relationship, a community within the Trinity, that God has this tri-personal way in which he understands himself and in respect to himself and all of creation. He, he at his heart, is in, a, is, is in a community of love, and that's important because that, that defines even more what he who he is and what he chooses to do in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that. But when we see this, we go, so then if no one's seen God, well, you can't see God in his essence. You'd have to be God to see him. But yet Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. How do we put this together? And we're told by the scripture. And it says right here, no one has ever seen God. That's the Father. We've never seen him in his essence. But the one and only Son, there it is, that's the title for Jesus, who is himself God 
As in the closest relationship with the Father, he's made him known. So God came in a way that we could see him, touch him, and experience him. See, he's personal. And everything we need to know about God was there, is in him. We can see it in him. But there's more than that. You look at, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, as, 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 or I'm sorry, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this idea here that some people would say that Jesus was not the God of the Old Testament. I mean, he couldn't be, right? He was born at a point in time. He was a human being like this. So doesn't that kind of mean, how could he be the God of, you know, of, of ages past? It doesn't make any sense. When we see in the New Testament when the Messiah, again, that's this chosen one that was, to be, was coming, they heard that he might be in the world. They said, well, where was he supposed to be born? What did the prophets of old who foretold this, where do they say he'd be born? We want to find out if he's there. And they're answered, they answer and say, in Bethlehem of Judea, he's going to be born. For it was written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by means the not least among the cities and the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they're saying this Messiah figure, this son of God figure, this person that would come, is going to come out of Bethlehem. But they were quoting the Old Testament scripture here. Now let me pause for a moment. Old Testament, New Testament, what does that mean? The Old Testament is those scriptures from the book of Genesis all the way to a prophet named Malachi. And all of those books kind of give us the whole story from the moment God created until the moment people came, until the moment a serious problem came into humanity that God needed to resolve and his promises to resolve that problem. That's the Old Testament. Basically, God agreeing and promising to bring us a solution to our issue, which we're going to get into in the series in a few weeks. And then when we get to the New Testament, that's where the solution comes. His name is Jesus. And he comes in and we see from the Gospel of Matthew all the way through to the end of the book where we see the end of the story because God gives us the whole story from beginning to end that we're all going to live and experience in this world. So in the New Testament, we see that. So in the New Testament, we're told that he would come out of Bethlehem, but then they're quoting the Old Testament prophet who told us that centuries ago. And this is what he says, but you, Bethlehem, Though you're small among the clans of Judah. Does that sound familiar? This is what they were pointing to. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This baby that was going to be born at this point in time actually goes back to the ancient of times. The words there literally mean goes back to the past history as though it goes into a vanishing point. So who would this one be that would not just be born at a moment in time, but pre-exist that. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I was, was anybody in here born? I'm just curious. Yeah, okay, you're with me? And anyone in here getting older? Okay, I know that's been happening. I'm pushing at least 35 at this point, so. I heard, you didn't have to laugh. We could have just, uh, some people rolled with me. So we've all, we all were born, we're all getting older, but the one thing we, we also know is that before that moment that we were born, we just we weren't there yet. That's the moment God created us. He put us together in the womb, and from that point, that was our life. But we didn't exist before that. This one was born, but he existed to infinity past before that. That's what we're told. And as he grew up and got older, and then he began to roll out this, this solution of God, this ministry that he meant to bring, some people challenged that. And at one point, they even challenged his identity. And then we see this. 
This is now again in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark. One of the high priests there asked him, are you the Messiah? Tell us now. Are you this Christ, this this Messiah, this promised one that was going to come, solve the problem of humanity? Are you the son of the blessed one? Are you this figure? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man. There's another title that he uses, Son of Man. We're going to see where it comes from. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Their reaction to this, they're, they're so angry, they tear their clothes. And they're like, this guy's worthy of death because he's blasphemed. He has, he has literally called himself God. That was blasphemous to them. Why did they think that? Because Jesus was quoting the Old Testament the prophets that wrote about this son of man, and this is what they said. The prophet Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's who Jesus was talking about, who he was. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And look at this. He, that son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Daniel is seeing this happening. He's saying it's coming in the future. This is going to happen. This is who Jesus said he was. Okay, And he's given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. There is no human being ever that will be worthy of worship. In the scripture, even when people at times try to worship the angels, the angels say, don't do it. Worship God alone. This son of man receives worship from the entire earth. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who Jesus is. So this idea that the Old Testament never said that this coming one, this coming Messiah, this would-be God is... is is ridiculous. But it goes, it goes beyond that. It's, so this, this, this simple idea that Jesus somehow was, was adopted by God, you know, that God, oh, you're pretty cool, I'll, I'll make you the, the Messiah, you're the guy. But he's just a mere human being. No way. We see that, that doesn't work. But we also have another view that's come in there that's tried to challenge this idea about Jesus by saying, you know what, okay, Jesus is a pretty exalted figure, that's cool, but he's not the God. He's not the, the, he's not the main guy. He's not the guy. He's maybe some kind of a lesser God, maybe some kind of a lesser being. Is that what the scripture says? Psalm 45, 6 tells us, actually this is a psalm that tells us about the coming Messiah, the one who would be this Christ, this Messiah figure. And this is what it says about that person. It says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. It said that this coming Messiah would be God. Well, who is that? Does the scripture tell us? The New Testament does. In Hebrews chapter 1, you might recognize it. But about who? The Son. That's Jesus. About the Son, God says this. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Does that seem familiar? The Old Testament was talking about Jesus. There was another idea out there that's gotten kind of popular again these days, and that was, you know what? All right, I'm going to follow Jesus, and he's pretty worthy of my attention, but he's kind of not the God of the Old Testament. You know, I don't need that view of that. I'm just, I follow Jesus, not that stuff. That's going to ultimately diminish Jesus, whether that's meant or not. That's a deception. It's an idea called Marcionism, and it was created by a guy named Marcion a long time ago, and that's not important. What's important is the idea is out there again. And is that true? Is, is Jesus somehow different, a different, a nicer God, more of a puppy love kind of you know, thing, right? Then, then when you look at the Old Testament, we see a God sometimes it's a little bit of a force to be reckoned with. And so maybe it kind of helps us 
to separate those a little bit and make Jesus a little softer. Is that who he is? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, tells us that this one who would come would come at a time when a voice of one would call in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's Yahweh. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But basically, that is the name of the one true God, the one creator. His name is Yahweh. And we're told that a voice one day would call out, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Did that happen? The Gospel of Mark in the New Testament tells us, chapter 1 starts off, the beginning of the good news, that's gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, and there it is, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, it's talking about John the Baptist who came and was calling out, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist came and said, Yahweh is coming, prepare And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus is Yahweh. There's no difference. There's no distinction. There's no separation between them. So Jesus is, we've seen, is is the everlasting ruler. He's, He's the righteous Lord, the one who makes our paths straight. But he's more than that. He's a glorious king. John chapter 12, the gospel tells us this. So the people at the time were also struggling with Jesus and what he was claiming about himself and what it was they needed to believe. And it says this. He said they struggled. They couldn't believe because as Isaiah said elsewhere, this is about from the prophet Isaiah, he's quoting, he has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. They can't see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, nor turn and God would heal them. Now, you know this, just a side point on this. You can get to a place where you are so blinded in your heart, where you so choose to not see God for who he is, that God will give you what you want. He will say, okay, then your hearts will be hardened and your eyes will be blinded. We see that in examples with Pharaoh and others through the scripture. And what he's saying right here is there are those who will hear this message of who Jesus is and will turn it off from the start. Because remember, it's one thing to accept something about Jesus. It's quite another thing to accept who he is in his fullness and what that means to us. And so he says here, some people were doing that. And then he puts this statement on. Isaiah the prophet said this because he saw Jesus' glory. How did he see Jesus' glory? Isaiah, he was 800 years before Jesus was walking around. When did he see Jesus' glory? Many of us know this passage in the Old Testament. This is the moment when Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. We're told in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He goes on to say that is the Lord, Yahweh, Almighty. That's who he saw. And then he heard the Lord say, Go and tell this people. Does this look familiar? Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the hearts of the people callous, their ears dull. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So, same problem then as the problem later. But the key thing is that Isaiah was seeing Jesus when he saw Yahweh because they're the same. They're the same. So he's the righteous Lord and the glorious king, but he's also the mighty creator. Psalm 102 tells us, in the beginning, God, the Lord, Yahweh, says he sits enthroned forever, and in the beginning, he laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands, we're told. They'll perish, but you'll remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. You ever buy a pair of jeans that you just absolutely love? And you're just like, I want to keep these jeans? 
seven or eight washes in, you know what I mean? It's just, that's it. The knees are showing through and you won't let it go. And you just kind of keep holding on to it, but they're going to wear out. Eventually they're done. We're told here is everything else, everything, the whole creation is going to wear out eventually, but he will never wear out. They'll be discarded, but he'll remain the same. His years will never end. That's Yahweh. That's the creator. He doesn't wear out like the creation. He renews the creation. He restarts it. He can do what he wants. He is the creator. But who is that talking about? We're told in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1, about the Son. God says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the, the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Does that look familiar? They will perish, but you'll remain. They'll wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Jesus is never going to wear out. He's the creator. He's Yahweh. goes on to even say in Psalm 33, he's a mighty creator. By the word of the Lord, Yahweh, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. He speaks universes into existence. He can speak galaxies into existence. That's who he is. But look at Hebrews 1 again. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He holds it all together. He is Yahweh. His powerful word is what creates it, sustains it, and holds it together. And if that's not enough... Oh, you're asking for more? Okay, a little bit more. <laughs> Just a little bit more, okay? I want to make this point. That's not enough. Jesus says it out of his own mouth because God has one name. The creator has one name that can apply only to him. And we see it in Exodus chapter 3 when he sends Moses to deliver his people and Moses says, who should I tell people that sent me? He says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. The I am, I am has sent me to you. That word I am literally is, is the, the, the four letters, yad, he, vav, he. It's Hebrew letters that we call the tetragrammaton. And we, we kind of extrapolate the sound of it to be Yahweh. That's where, where we get the name Yahweh from. But that name was so precious to those who understood the creator, so exalted to those who understand who he was that they wouldn't even write it down when they copied the scriptures when they came to the moments when his name was in the text they would actually replace his name with a word Adonai which meant divine lord out of respect for his name they didn't want his name to be tarnished by their pen and so they would write the word Adonai or divine lord and that's why today even today, when you read the Old Testament and you see the points where God's name is supposed to be, you will see the Lord in capital letters. The Lord. That's the history of that. Because his name was so precious, so unique to him alone, that they didn't even want to tarnish it with their pen. So who is worthy of that name? Only one. And he said it in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Because he told those who were challenging him and saying, by what authority do you have? Are you even more important than our father Abraham, that great patriarch from centuries ago that established our faith? You can't possibly be more important than him. And he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. I am. Jesus is the great I am. This is who we're dealing with. This is the beginning of the gospel. That Jesus, that Christ is Lord. 
And there is nobody else in that place. I got to, with, with due respect, I know there are people out there of different religious faiths and stuff. I believe we should always dialogue and treat that with respect. But bottom line is we are all looking for the same answers and we're wondering who holds the answer to the deepest questions of life. And I got to tell you, it is not right to look at Jesus and think of him as he's sitting in one chair right next to Buddha and Krishna and Muhammad and uh, anyone else, you Zoroaster and anyone else you can name along the way. He is not sitting on a chair next to them. They are sitting on the chairs, or maybe you could say they are the chairs, and he is the one that built the house and all the chairs and everything in it. That's who he is. That's who we're dealing with here. And understanding the gospel has to start with understanding that Jesus is Lord, because the more we understand who God is, the more we understand who we are. And the more we understand that God is God, the more we understand all the ways in which we're not. But we need to understand him. Because today we're, we're trying to redefine the whole creation. We're trying to take his place. And I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I, I just want to tell you, today we are seeing the death of truth and in its place the rise of power. We're seeing preference rise up over truth. We're drifting away from the truth, and then no one can even challenge anymore the ways in which we are because, as, as one person once said, the, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who try to speak it. And that's where we're at. We're giving in to things like deconstruction. We're talking about deconstructing our faith, and most people don't even know what that means as it's trendy right now. Let's deconstruct our faith and really understand some, some, some challenge of what we believe is, is valid. We shouldn't just carry on empty traditions. I get that. But what we're actually talking about, most people don't know, is that comes from an idea that comes from an idea called deconstruction, which says that we need to challenge even the meaning of words, that there are no such things as true or false, right or wrong. There's no meaning in that apart from what you give it. Think about where the world goes when that happens, when we start to say there's no right or wrong apart from what you think. I was watching a show recently that's kind of getting popularity. I wanted to see what it was saying to the people that it's popular because art imitates reality. And this show was... This person in the show said, there's, there's no such thing as morality, right or wrong. There's no such thing. There's only gain and there's loss. That's all you'll be judged by. And not how you do it, they said. Winners are never judged by how. They save that for the losers. That's, that's a rampant materialism and driven through by power. Right or wrong doesn't matter anymore, just gain. Think about that. We start playing those kind of games we lose our moorings in life because we're rejecting the source. We're rejecting the creator. Do you know the word in the original, we get a lot of our words from original languages, and the word for source, the word for the source of something, in Greek anyway, is the word arche. And the word meaning not or without is the word on. When you put them together, not, without a source, you get anarche. Anarche. We reject God as the source, and in our souls, we will have anarchy. We will seek to overthrow the only one who has the right to define who we are. And we wonder why we're where we are. He is God. We're told that over and over in that scripture. He is. He is. It was for him. This is what he did. He is. He is. He is. Which means if he is the creator, then he is not a creature. And yet, I think we're trying to destroy that binary too, that either or. This is the game we're playing. And in fact, I think what we're ultimately trying to do is reverse that, not just destroy it, but reverse it. So when God says God is God and we are not, we want to flip that around. We pull the control out of his hands. We, we, we begin to reshape the creation, created order the way we think it makes sense. And it gives rise to some crazy things, some difficult and, and, and dysfunctional things. 
and dangerous things to our soul. I saw something recently. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm calling this the rise of what's called the attention ethic. I don't know if you've seen something like this out there. There used to be we could kind of ascribe motives to people. We could say this was the motive of somebody. Anger or, or greed or something, why they would do something bad. Nowadays, you're seeing situations happen. You can't find the motive. I saw a, a situation where a guy came, came up to somebody he didn't even know, shot them, got back in their car, and while they were running from the police, because they knew now they were going to be tracked, they were on their channel filming it for everybody to, to see, talking about what they did and how they're going to get captured. And What is the motive there? Attention. Because attention means I'm at the center. Now, I know that sounds extreme, but I guarantee you, we can find maybe even in our own lives ways in which we are seeking attention at the cost of everything else and everyone else because we are the center now. And we're getting very confused. We can't sustain this apart from knowing our creator. The world is shouting against abuse, but then we increasingly think, uh, think pornography should be normalized. Think about it. The world, we want to say that we want to fight for things like, let's say, women's rights, but we can't even agree on what a man or woman is anymore because we're, de we're deconstructing every meaning. We're a world now that we talk about how important it is to stand up for individuals and, a, and, and give a voice to the voiceless, but we have discarded 73 million voiceless children worldwide every year. How do we put these things together? They are at contradiction because we have cut off the source. Can we truly understand the, the value of humanity if we reject God who grounds human value? We can't have a proper understanding of human value apart from him. And that's why it's so important, and this is my final point here, that, that what the scripture tells us and what the gospel and the good news tells us is not just that Jesus is God, but that God chose to become Jesus. That is what's so vital about who he is to see inside the character of God and know that he would do this. Colossians chapter 2, one chapter after what we read at the beginning, says this, for in Christ, that's Jesus, lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So God, in all his fullness, come, chose to come and dwell in a body and become personal and become human and become touchable and become reachable and humble himself in that way. It's something he never needed to do. He's the creator. But the creator chose to become his creation. And in that single act, he, he affirms the value of humanity, how precious it is to him. That's exactly why, as a, as a Christian, we should never think about attacking any kind of his created order, especially in humanity, changing it, abusing it, redefining it, altering it, killing it, hurting it. None of that should make any sense. And yet in the world today, we, we are just mixing and matching on all of that. Why? Because we, we've lost the source. But he doesn't just affirm the value of, of humanity. He affirms the key ethic of who we're meant to be. Not self-centered, attention-seeking individuals, but others-centered. Because that one who became human, that that creator, everlasting ruler, righteous Lord, glorious king, mighty one, the great I am, the son of God, chose to become pierced when he, when he entered into that human body. He was pierced for you and me. 
Just a couple more scriptures on this. Zechariah chapter 12 tells us the one who would come, one day God would come. He said, they will look on me as I pour out grace and they will look on me, the one they've pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. What was he talking about? I think the scripture tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions and our sins. I think the scripture tells us that as he quoted on the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm hanging here not for my sin. I'm the creator of all. I'm righteous. I'm the one who made the straight paths. But I'm hanging here for the sins of others. I'm broken because the world was broken. And as he hung there and said that, that psalm tells us that they would look on, they would, they would look on the one they've pierced. They would pierce his hands and his feet. That pierced one reveals to us that at the heart of God is a radical love for others. At the heart of the Father, Son, and Spirit is a radical love for you and me. How does that not shape who we are? But that's, that's the issue, you see. We won't see the gospel if we don't first accept who he is. If we understand and we open our hearts to the fact that he is Lord, then that begins the conversation. If we don't, it's the end of the conversation. He is Lord. He's the pierced one. And because of that, because he's the Lord that would sacrifice himself in the way that he did, which we will get into in the weeks to follow, that is why, yeah, I'm going to give you one more scripture. <laughs> that is why this one that originally Isaiah said that was all about Jesus came to pass. Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh, it said in Isaiah, every knee should bow and on heaven and on earth, under the earth, every tongue, all of creation, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when you see him for who he is, you realize this is not just bowing a knee in submission, bowing a knee because one is pressing you down. You've missed the point. Mark my words, every knee will bow to Jesus because he is Lord. So one day we may face that unwillingly, but what God offers is that we can do that willingly, knowing that we're doing that as that scripture right before that tells us that he's exalted that position because he humbled himself, became obedient to death on that cross and was pierced for you and for me. And that's why we acknowledge how glorious he is, that he is Lord. If you haven't figured it out yet, today's all about exalting him. And maybe that's where your heart is right now because that's where it begins, that consideration. If so, this is a moment of exaltation that we can share together. If your heart is not there, though, then that's okay. But take this time and think about who is Jesus to you? That's the beginning of the good news. Who is Jesus to you? Okay, no more scriptures. But just a reminder, too, there will be those for prayer up here afterwards something to carry with us. How about that this week? As we open up our minds to what the gospel, the good news is, think about every decision, every action, every word, every thought. Who is Lord? Because if Jesus, as one person said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Not to you. Even though he is.
Father, we pray that our thoughts, our heart, our lives would open up and begin with this important and critical thing, that you are Lord. So as we open up our lives to you, God, we pray that you would continue to speak to us about what your good news is. And God, we give you our lives and we exalt you. In Jesus' name.